Wherever cancer is, Hancock Health will fight. In any part of you and in all corners of East Central Indiana. From Indianapolis to Greenfield to Knightstown and beyond. From hospital rooms to family rooms, we fight. With technology and medicine. With care backed by the wisdom of Mayo Clinic. For you, for your family, and for your future. We fight cancer here. HancockHealth.org slash cancer. Central Indiana. How are you? Happy Super Bowl Sunday. I'm Terry Stacy, along with producer Kylan Talley. Good morning. Denny Smith is here. Hey there. You hear him on Home and Garden Show Saturdays 9 to 1. Always glad to have him in studio with us. It is February 12th. We are just five weeks and three days until spring. That sounds good, right? <laughs> no, who's counting, right? Yeah, who's counting? Five weeks, three days. We can do it! But it is a beautiful Sunday morning. 33 degrees in sunshine. It is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, You know, I have to tell you before I go into Super Bowl Sunday, I know that my sound is a little bit different coming out of my mouth. It's because I knocked a tooth out this week. Oh, Terry. <laughs> and uh, it's it's the, one of the front ones. So I have a, a temporary on there. I was going to say. Thank you, I Dr. Polis. Okay, here's the good thing. I didn't even notice. That's good. I didn't notice. Because uh had that put on the doctor, Dr. Polis, Gus Polis. It was um, great to take me the next morning after I knocked it out and what put a temporary on there. It's a long story. Okay. And I don't, I, we don't have a whole lot of time. Yeah. Usually <laughs> when I week- bust up my mouth, it's usually the dog giving me a muzzle punch it's a muzzle punch she comes in too quick and smacks me and bloodies my lip and Uh, it was a it was a uh, veneer anyway it wasn't a real tooth but it was a veneer anyway uh did that fell over a dog gate (laughs) this dog has been terry (laughs) worried about my hip uh but i'm fine (laughs) i'm okay when i got up i really was like oh my gosh i can't believe my old hip has my old hips are hanging on oh god because you know Knee, it doesn't matter. This is not about me. It's Super Bowl Sunday. But I wanted to let you know, if I sound a little different, it's because my tongue is hitting a, a, a temporary. <laughs> okay. Anyway. It is I'm Super sorry Bowl I'm Sunday. laughing. But no, Jenny, fun. it's okay. Because I think you, people with dogs relate to it. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, you got to be careful. That's one thing I'm going to tell you, younger, younger people. Take uh. care of your mouth and take care of your hips. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday. The day after is called Miserable Monday. Really? Yep. It surely is. Also, tomorrow I found out, this is interesting, is um, National Mistress Day. <laughs> I saw that too. <laughs> I got so concerned because I only knew it, I think Valentine's Day is the 13th, isn't it? Yes, it is. Today's Abraham Lincoln's birthday. But yes, tomorrow, the day before Valentine's Day is Mistress Day. So the people that are cheating say, well, I like to be with the one I really love on this day, on Valentine's Day. But for all of, for, for, you know, who I'm cheating with, I'll spend it with you the day before. And it really is a thing. It really is an honest to goodness thing. It happens. Mistress day tomorrow. What do you call a a guy who's a mistress? Mister. (laughs) Yeah. What do you call? I hope not. Just call him a... Uh, I don't know what you call. I don't know. Uh, But here's the interesting thing. There's, they would like to have Super Bowl, the day after Super Bowl, become a national holiday. 
they, meaning I don't know who. It's ridiculous. But recently, there were two Democratic lawmakers in Tennessee who proposed making Monday after the Super Bowl a state holiday because so many people call in sick the day after. So my, my, might as well make that a state holiday. I think it's silly. I like the ones that I work with that are straight up and they say, look, I'm not going to be on a, up on, on yeah. Monday. I take mean, a vacation take day. Take a day. Yeah, you know? take your day. I We're mean, companies give you everything now, really. I mean, as far as like personal days and, you know, mental health days and all kinds of stuff. So use one of your days. Anyway, you may wonder why, if this is the case, why can't Super Bowl be on a Saturday? There's nothing going on on Saturday, right? Well, the home and garden show. Well, yeah, that. But this is at night. <laughs> well, he addressed that. Roger Goodell actually addressed this question that came up to him. And it's and he says, the reason we haven't done it in the past is simply just from an audience standpoint. The audiences on Sunday night are so much larger than on a Saturday night. And I believe, personally, you put that Super Bowl in a, on, on a Wednesday yeah, and people still are still going to, exactly. going to watch you. Yeah, that's what they did with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You know, the race was always done on Monday. And then they realized since it was an outdoor event, they needed a rain day. So they backed it up to Sunday. So they at least... Is that it? That's it. And boy, I tell you what, at the time, people in Speedway, uh, the churches and stuff, they went nuts. St. Christopher's, uh, Speedway Christian, uh, Speedway Methodist. They, it was an uproar, but it was an outdoor event, and they needed an extra day in case it rained. I didn't know that. That's how it happened. Sure. But you don't have to do that for the Super Bowl. You can put the Super Bowl on Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. People are still going to watch. You're still going to make a million bazillion dollars <laughs> NFL. Don't Seven million dollars in commercial. Oh, my it. goodness. I know it. Uh, okay, something else that's kind of cool about the Super Bowl, and then we'll take a break, is for the first time in Super Bowl history, the military flyover will be piloted by an all-female team. That's cool. And it is cool. That's cool. It really is. It's this particular moment will honor 50 years of women flying in the Navy. Josie Orr was a pilot. She was the wife of Governor Orr uh, back in the 70s, or I think. And she was a transport pilot during World War World oh, War II. Oh, I didn't know Women that. Women did a lot of uh, pilotage uh, back in World War II, but they make great pilots. I mean, they're probably better than men because yeah. men are stupid, and you got to get over that. You know, the one of the pilots that's uh, that will be flying over the Super Bowl before the before the show actually said, you know, look, I got into the military to be a pilot, not a woman pilot, not a female pilot. Exactly. You know, I just want to be a pilot. Oh, I almost got thrown out of an office once when I had a farmer and his wife come in, and I called her a farmer's wife. Oh my lord, no! Oh, I'm no. a farmer, yeah. and she ended up being on the board of directors for Purdue's uh, Farmer really? Network. Oh God, I felt so bad. Awesome. I have never called a farmer's wife since. Good for you. A yeah. lesson learned. Well, and you're not a you're not a woman pilot. You're we a pilot. Learn. We learn from each other. Yeah. We'll admit our mistake and we'll 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 fix it. Uh, okay, uh, Kylan, let me look at the time. Ten twelve. Should I take a break? Well, sure. Yeah, okay. I'm pretty excited for this next guest. Okay. Oh yeah, this is kind of cool. We are just one week away from the Daytona 500 which I absolutely love. And coming up, we're going to meet a junior at Rose Holman Institute of Technology, and she will be racing on the track in Daytona next week. Mandy Chick joins us next on 93 WIBC. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
93 WIBC. It is Terry Stacy, and our next guest is a junior at Rose Holman Institute of Technology, but isn't your typical student athlete. Her major is mechanical engineering, and she's taking the next step into racing the NASCAR National Touring Series while studying full-time at the nation's number one undergraduate engineering college. And joining us now is Mandy Chick. Mandy, how are you? I am great. Thank you for having me on the show today. Absolutely. Uh, Was it last year that you moved up into the ARCA Menard Series? Yes. Last year we made the jump and had two races in the ARCA Menard Series. How old were you when you decided to be a stock car driver? I started racing when I was six years old. I began racing in quarter midgets, little cars built for kids, and I've spent several years, about 15 years in the sport now. I have just had a love for racing since I was little. And when, where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town outside of Kitty. It's called DeSoto. What has it been like for you pursuing a career in this male-dominated, still today, male-dominated sport? If you look back at my history, I have been in male-dominated fields since I was little. I have been in the racing industry, which is obviously male-dominated. I've learned a lot. It's really pushed me to have that drive for my goals. And so it's something that, of course, you don't always want to be faced with that, but it has taught me a lot of really important lessons. And same for engineering. I am obviously in a male-dominated field in that as well. Again, I have been forced to lean on my peers and just learn from them and dig into it and really show other people that are interested in the field how a woman can be successful in both of these fields, even when they're male-dominated. When you were six years old and they put you in that first car, you obviously (laughs) wanted to be in that car. That love, it must have come from somewhere. I am a third-generation racer. Okay. So my dad and my grandpa raced before I did. My grandpa built cars and he built a lot of engines. My dad actually drove. They owned a NASCAR truck team when I was really little from about 01 to 05. Wow. When they sold that, that's when my racing career started. It's a family thing. We all have bonded over it over the years. There's a lot of top NASCAR drivers that will drive in an ARCA race. Do they help some of those younger ARCA drivers? They absolutely do because they remember where they come from. And, of course, there was a time when they were exactly in the position that we are in now. They were up and coming in the sport, and a lot of people in the top ranks came down and helped them. So, of course, they're always happy to help the the younger drivers in the series. Mandy Chick is our guest, and uh, this is so cool. She's a junior at Rose Holman Institute of Technology, but her next race is the Series 200-mile race Saturday, uh, February 18th at Daytona International Speedway. Have you ever driven on the famed Daytona International Speedway track? I have. I got to practice there a few weeks ago in January at a mandated test by the series. And that track is so cool. It's fascinating. There's so much history there. It's just, it was surreal. I was in awe and on cloud nine all weekend long. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I bet. Well, Uh another cool part of this story is that Mandy and Rose Holman formed a recent partnership with the school being a sponsor of her number 74 Toyota. Tell us about the support that you have received from, from Rose Holman. Yeah, absolutely. Rose Holman has supported me from day one of my educational career here at this school. I like to tell the story that the first weekend that I went off to college, I had a race that I traveled out of town for. And um, 
I get I kept getting texts all weekend long and they had done watch parties and um, were cheering me on. And I returned back and everyone that passed me on campus that Monday had asked me how my race went and told me they were so proud and they're looking forward to the next one. But that the support doesn't even stop there. The professors have been so kind and helpful in getting me caught up when I have to miss school for races. Um, all of the professors are very supportive of my racing and ask about it all the time. Um, just Rose Holman is that close-knit community, and that's why I fell in love with the school. Um, but further than that, it's the, the engineering and innovative education that I can bring back to my racing, and it has helped me um, improve in my knowledge in racing as well. So it's, it's an all-around thing, but we – partnered to specifically to increase the awareness of women in STEM fields. That's something I've been passionate about for a while. And they're trying to increase their female enrollment in um, in future freshman classes. So it was really the perfect fit. But they have been so supportive. She's been going on kind of a, a speaking tour when she talks to middle yeah. schools and high school students about what she's doing. And NASCAR actually has confirmed that Mandy is the only known active racer on the circuit who is both a full-time student and sponsored by the university they attend. Mandy, I have to tell you, I've talked with drivers just coming up through the ranks. And so I remember talking to like Jeff Gordon and Tony Stewart and some uh-huh. of them as they start climbing that ladder. And you are so well-spoken. Has anybody taught you how to deal with media? Yeah, so I have been in um, media and marketing training since I was 11. Wow. Um, So I learned how to have hands-on involvement in my social media. So if you look at my social media and my marketing, that's me handling all of that. Um, I pride myself on my personal connection with my fans. They they have been the ones that have supported me since day one. So I give back to them by giving that them that them the personal involvement and the personal answers to any of their questions. Um, I think being an only child, I have grown up around adults as well. So I've, I've learned how to have conversations with adults and, um, and then just, speaking through my my speaking tour as well you know it's it's an important part of it and you do it so well at your young age of 20 what do you think you're going to be doing once you graduate you've got that degree in engineering management your minors are in economics and entrepreneurial studies and Mm -hmm. driver in the arca series hoping to keep moving up that ladder when you're done with school what will you want to be doing so I would say that my my big goal one day, if the stars aligned and, and everything worked out, I would love an opportunity at the top levels of NASCAR, of course. I would love to be a NASCAR Cup Series driver and um, travel the country getting to use my racing as an outreach still for STEM, um, speaking to several schools. Um, in addition to that, I think my passion for engineering, I will always want to be involved in the technical side of the sport as well. So figuring out how my degrees mesh with the racing world would be ideal. I'd love to own my own business and do do custom fabrication projects, custom um, machining projects, and design projects. Um, I just think, for me, I have such passion in the innovative and engineering side that I, I don't 
see myself walking away from that. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm not going to forget you. And anybody that has heard just a few minutes with you here today, Mandy Chick, they're not going to forget you either. And she'll be donning a uniform that represents her school. And so watch for Mandy Chick driving the number 74 Rose Holman Toyota in the Arkham Menard Series race on Saturday the 18th at Daytona International Speedway as they lead up to the Daytona 500 on Sunday. All right. We can follow you on social media and uh, all that good stuff. Mandy, where do we find you? Yeah, my, my website is MandyChick.com. My Instagram and Twitter, both of those are at MandyCoolChick. And my Facebook is, just if you look up my name, it's my athlete page, Mandy Chick. We're going to talk again. I can't wait to, to keep watching you and, and cheer for you. You are amazing. Thank you so much for time today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I've enjoyed speaking with you. I am such a fan of that young lady. It is 1026, Kylan. Some trending stories for your Sunday. A New Jersey restaurant is looking to ban children under 10 for going into their restaurant. Nettie's House of Spaghetti over in New Jersey, they posted saying, we love kids. We really, truly do. How about this? But this story. between oh. noise levels, yeah. lack of space for high chairs, cleaning up the messes, and the liability of kids running around the restaurant, we've decided it's time to take control of the situation. Sad. Sad, sad, but they've been getting some great response both 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 Very directions. Mixed, yeah. You know, yeah, yay for you doing this, and oh come on, right? You know, uh, some of the best restaurants in town say they can handle the kids, can't mm-hmm. you? So can't you can you? surely do it. Uh, that's an interesting story, and we'll continue to follow that one too. Denny, you've got a guest, uh, Charlie Plum, coming up. Charlie Plum. Fifty years ago this month, the POWs from the Hanoi Hilton were released, the Paris Peace Accord, and we've got a story for you. Fox News is next. Ninety-three WIBC. Denny Smith for the first day here on 93 WIBC. And I am so very proud to introduce you to a man I've considered a role model ever since I heard him speak about 10 years ago. Charlie Plum was a young man who attended the United States Naval Academy. He became a Navy fighter pilot, one who flew several missions over Vietnam until one fateful flight. He was shot down over North Vietnam at the age of 24 and became a prisoner of war in the latter part of the 1960s. He always declares that he's no hero. But from my perspective, I don't necessarily agree because he survived nearly six years in the harshest of inhumane conditions in the service and dedication to this country. We are very quickly approaching the 50-year anniversary of his release in February of 1973, and I tracked him down a couple of days ago to get his perspective on what he lived through over 50 years ago. Charlie Plum, what a delight it is to speak with you again, and welcome to WIBC. Denny Smith, great to be with you as well. I appreciate your helping tell my story. Charlie, it's been 50 years since we watched you and your fellow POWs come home. And I remember seeing you all on the tarmac back in 1973 as you'd been released to come back home. How long was it before it sunk in after what you call 2,103 days of hell? How long did it take to sink in that the hell was really over? You know, it was um, was kind of incremental, as a matter of fact. We didn't really believe we were going home until we got on that airplane in uh, Vietnam. We landed at Clark Air Force Base, but it really wasn't until about two days later in the Great Lakes Naval Hospital in Chicago, where my family, mom and dad, big sister, two little brothers, uh, joined me. And we got out our guitars like we had done uh, uh, in our early years and, and started hooting and hollering and singing spirituals and uh, banging on the floor. That's a that big was the day. I think I really, really realized that I was home. Now that's a big hospital. Were you high up on the uh, high up floors or low? Uh, where were you on that in that hospital? 
Interestingly enough, uh, we were on the 11th floor. It was a 12-story story hospital, and they they didn't know who we were going to be when we came home. They thought we might be suicidal, that we might be um, somehow deranged. They had spent tens of thousands of dollars putting bars and green wire over all of our windows so we couldn't zip out. I was uh, I was actually escorted by two Marine guards that went everywhere with me for the first several days I was home because they just didn't know after that many years in prison what we would be like. Well, the second day I escaped from the guards and went out to a local <laughs> airport. Oh my gosh. You know what? They did a lot of research on you folks coming back as POWs and PTSD. The numbers for those of you who are prisoners of war is very low. It's like one in 25 versus what we call normal combat vets coming back. And it was like one of three. Do you have any explanation for why PTSD numbers for POWs is so much lower? You know, that really is an amazing thing, and I have my own thoughts. I believe that to change your attitude toward about anything in life, it takes a certain amount of pain over a certain amount of time. And so as proof of that is that the very few number, like it's 4% of the POWs have PTSD. It's primarily the guys shot down near the end of the war and were not tortured. And we're only POWs for a few weeks or a month or two. And uh, it almost seems like the longer you were there, the more healthy physically and mentally uh, you came home. So a certain amount of pain over a certain amount of time. Now, apply this you know, to the average person. I don't think it's necessarily physical pain, but I think that we can actually use the adverse pain of our lives to actually improve our character. Charlie, how in the world did you stay mentally tough in the face of these terrible conditions, there was torture, there was misery, there was no comfort whatsoever. How did you stay mentally tough? Two or three things. Personally, uh, my faith was a very strong part of my survival. I'm a man of faith, a Christian, and uh, I really felt like there was a plan. But I might not ever know what the plan was, but there was a plan. And as long as I uh, kept my faith, that I would probably survive. And on the other hand, to lose faith, I think, was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I thought I was going to die there, I probably would. The second big important part of my survival was just the communication I had with the other prisoners. We, we were not supposed to communicate with each other. Even if you were lucky enough to have a cellmate, we were to whisper. And so uh, never, ever allowed outside until the very end uh, and never allowed to communicate with any more than, than a, a person or two at a time. But we set up a pretty unbelievable communication system where we could find out who else was there, what was happening. And the leadership then gave us a set of rules. And, and it was those rules that actually brought our team together and turned out to be the finest team I'll ever play on of guys that I couldn't see, I couldn't communicate with, except through the secret code. And yet the leadership of that group was great and the, and the teamwork kept me alive. I always wondered that in a POW situation, do you recognize leadership or are there just natural leaders among you that hold you all together? One of the great things about being in the military, in a prison camp, is that you always know exactly who is senior, who's calling the shot. And when we were moved from camp to camp, as I was six different times while I was there, the, the first question, well, as soon as we developed our secret communication with everybody else, first question was, who's senior? And we compared rank and serial numbers and dates of rank at, to determine exactly who was calling the shots. And it was very comforting, you know, to know that, hey, there's somebody in charge. It was also very comforting for me because I was a very junior guy. <laughs> so I was happy that somebody else was going was to be calling the shots. 
Give folks an idea of what your diet was like for six years as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam. We survived primarily on two bowls of rice a day. I say bowls, they're cups uh, of rice and broth. Um, it was kind of a, a greasy broth that uh, you think maybe some pork fat had been uh, <laughs> dragged through the broth. And uh, sometimes this would have what we call sewer greens in it. We didn't know exactly what they were, but, but we ate them. Uh, it turns out rice is a pretty perfect food. And it was enough there to keep us alive. Were you allowed to congregate with other POWs or were you in total isolation? Did you ever see any of the other POWs? I was in solitary confinement first for a few weeks. Some guys were in solitary for four and a half years. The more senior guys had had, uh, had a tougher time than I did. They gave me a roommate, then they took him away, and then they gave me three roommates in a little cell that was eight feet long and eight feet wide. So we were pretty tight. And near the end of the war, when they knew that they had to treat us a little bit better, they actually allowed us outside. The last couple of months in that prison camp, we were allowed outside like the old World War II compound prison camps uh, were. So it varied from, from year to year and from camp to camp. But primarily, we were in jail cells most all the time. Charlie Plum joins me right now. You know, I did the research on you, Charlie. You went in as a young man of the age of 24. You didn't get out until you were 30. And I... Look at that as a time in my life, what happened in almost a six-year period of time. How did you maintain control of yourself versus the environment? It was almost like like a conscious mind versus a subconscious mind. Did you always rely on the faith, or how did you control yourself? No, it's a very, very good point, uh, Denny, is that I felt from the very beginning, well, well, not quite from the very beginning, the first maybe three months, I felt very angry, very bitter, uh, just steaming, you know, with, with hate uh, and discontent. And a guy passed a, a little quote to that prison wall. Now, we were passing around patriotic quotes and Bible verses and stories and jokes and things on our little communication network. But this day, he passed me a quote, and it was this, acid does more harm in the vessel it's stored than on the subject it's poured. What that meant to me was that all this vitriol within me, this hate and discontent within my body is not hurting the enemy at all. In fact, they're happy about it, but it's killing me. I've, I've made a promise to myself at that moment. I said, I said uh, Charlie, you're probably going to live through this. But if you don't, you got to make them work to carry you out of here feet first. You're not going to kill yourself. And so it was kind of a challenge. It was, it was a puzzle for me to unwind, to take control of my destiny. And, and it worked. It, in any situation in life, I'm convinced that when everything else is gone, you still have self-control. You can control your, your response to the challenge. The voice you hear is that of former POW Charlie Plum. Fifty years ago, the month of February, Charlie came home, and he's been so gracious to share some time with us here. Charlie, uh, we got to jump to a break here real quick. Have you got a few more minutes to share with us so we can come back and hear more of this story? Absolutely, Denny. Proud to be with you. You're listening to The First Day. I'm Denny Smith, and this is 93 WIBC. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Keep me in the warmth of your love when you depart. Keep me safe, safe and sound. You're listening to... 
this is now Rihanna or Rihanna. This is her song from Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. You're going to be hearing Rihanna, or Rihanna, however you want to say it, I guess. She'll be doing the halftime show for the Super Bowl if you tune in to that. I think she's the most, she's one, she is really like at the top of the list as far as net worth, as far as females go, yeah. and followers on social media, mm-hmm. and awards. Money. And she's great. And I mean, Beyonce's right up there, you saw with the Grammys. Sure did. Oh, amazing inspiration. 6.30 tonight is the Super Bowl. That's Kylan Talley. I'm Terry Stacy. You're listening to The First Day on 93 WIBC along with Denny Smith. When last we left you, we were visiting with Charlie Plum, a former POW who spent six years in a North Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. He's been so gracious to join us. And Charlie, we were talking about your diet at that time, and you said you were all pretty skinny. Did you feel healthy? How did you feel uh, physically when you were in confinement? You know, I felt really uh, physically pretty well. You know, there was sickness and there was, um, you know, times when we'd get pneumonia and some guys got dysentery and, and, and some guys died. You know, if you had appendicitis, you probably weren't going to survive that. But, uh, but personally, uh, of course, I was 24, so I was younger than most all the other guys. But we were all fighter pilots, and so we'd all been through this crucible before, and we were all pretty healthy when we, when we went into that prison camp. So... No, uh, I felt good most of the time. I have read how you have built a life around forgiveness, and you got a chance to go back to North Vietnam, and you even met the leader of the camp. What what was the relationship with your captors afterward? Were they humbled? Were they, you know, how did they react to the time that that they were in charge of you folks? They, they, the particular guy that I met with over there, I took uh, my wife and three of our four kids uh, back with me uh, to Hanoi, North Vietnam. And I met with the fighter pilots that I had hassled against. I did an aerial combat with these guys. It was kind of interesting to lay out a chart and, and go through, hey, who got the best of whom? But the reason I was there and the interesting part was to meet the camp commander, the enemy in charge of all of our torture. And they told me that he might want to apologize, but nothing could be farther from the truth. He wanted to hug me. And, and then he stood back and he said, you know, I was your warden from 1968 to 1972. And my greatest achievement was keeping you healthy and happy while you were here. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, I said, what's that bag of the wit? Bubba, don't you remember me? <laughs> don't you remember? <laughs> I talked to this guy for 45 minutes or an hour, and he would never, ever admit that he had ever harmed an American. And to, to this day, I don't know if he, if he just was afraid of some repercussion because it was, it was a war crime, what he was doing, or if he didn't remember, or the fact of the matter was, I never saw him while I was being tortured. So it's possible that he didn't even know what was happening when the guards came into my room with their ropes and irons. But, uh, but it was a very interesting trip going back there. And I had forgiven him and all the other guards early on. Again, I decided probably in the first three or four months that forgiveness is not just a good Christian principle. It's a survival tool that if I could forgive not just the guards for their torture, but for, for myself, you know, forgive me for the mistakes that I had made. Forgive the mechanic that put the airplane together. Forgive the president for starting the war. I mean, if you cannot forgive then you live kind of a, a, a life of torment. And so I found even early on that to forgive the enemy was probably the healthiest thing I could do. 
I read a story about eight years ago. I take Forbes magazine and I was reading along in Forbes magazine. And by this time, I had already uh, heard you personally. I attended one of your, your events, but I came across this article about this young man that approached you. He had been on the Kitty Hawk and he approached you in a restaurant and he said, you're Charlie Plum. And you identified yourself. Yes, I am. He said, you were on the Kitty Hawk. And he said, I packed your parachute. Can you tell me that story? No, you you remember it well, Denny, and uh, I was I was terribly surprised. I was blown away when he said that. Uh, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Uh, he was, in fact, uh, in my squadron on the Kitty Hawk aircraft carrier, and he was a guy we called the rigger, the parachute rigger, who actually stood at a long wooden table and weaved the shrouds and folded the silk panels of his parachutes, passed them along one after another, doing his job. Uh, and and I felt sort of guilty when I met him. I probably never thanked him or said anything to him at all because I was a fighter pilot. You know, I'm the reason that that aircraft carrier existed, and he was just a sailor. So, so I use that in my presentations and ask the question: Who packs your parachute? You know, who who do you uh, depend on in the tough times? Who gives you strength? You know, when you're under pressure. And 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 so it was. It was a it was an amazing experience for me. This guy turned out to be a humble human being that didn't want any accolades, achievement medals for all this. He just was happy that he'd helped somebody out along life's rocky road. Listen, I always try to call you on your birthday. I missed you last year on November 3rd, but I couldn't help but see you got yourself a pretty cool birthday present on November 5th last year. You got to fly with the Blue Angels. You even got your name on the side of the check, Charlie. It was really cool. Been on my bucket list for a lot of years. In fact, had I not been shot down, I really wanted to be a Blue Angel. Uh, you know, never got to that. But they, uh, my 80th birthday, they gave me a ride in their jet. They, the Blue Angels sang happy birthday to Charlie Plum. <laughs> hey, and while we're at it, you know that that second seat in my gyrocopter is always going to be open to you when you get to Indiana. Now, I understand you're still flying, too, because you sent me a picture of your Rutan. How often do you get to fly? Oh, three or four times a month, every time I can. Yeah, the uh, Long Easy is, in fact, a an experimental airplane. I didn't build it, but a buddy of mine did. And it's a beautiful little airplane, but so is yours. I, I saw a picture of your airplane. I'd love to fly. So next time I'm in your neighborhood, you can count on me. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, Charlie, I think you know that I wish you all of God's blessings in the year to come. And uh, since you're a captain in the Navy, fair winds and following seas, my friend. Thank you for, for that. I do appreciate it. And I'll take you up on that. That was Charlie Plum, a f- former POW in North Vietnam who came home 50 years ago. Charlie, what do you remember what day you came home? Absolutely. 18th of February, 1973. Back to my wife's birthday. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What a, what a great story. Well, Charlie, you take care of yourself and just know you've got a home here on WIBC here in central Indiana. Okay? Thanks, Danny. Appreciate you, my friend. It is 1054. Denny, what an awesome interview. He's a good guy. And uh, he was talking about that when they came home. They really did. He really and truly did not think he was coming home. He was prepared for the worst. He was prepared to be shot he, and uh, to listen to him. And then you also read the story of Colonel Robbie Reisner, who was the head of all the POWs. It's an incredible story. Um and this is, and again, we play this because this is an anniversary. He yeah. came home. Uh, he come. He came home fifty years ago. This coming Saturday happens to be his wife's birthday. But I remember the Paris Peace Accord was signed in late January, 
And uh, that was for all of us who had lived through that from six, you know, I was in high school when the Vietnam War and all the protests and everything. But that was the end of the war. It was January 27th. Uh, 1973. And then three weeks later, uh, they started bringing the prisoners home. Terry, it was a wonderful time to see. I think it was Colonel Reisner who all of his family greeted him on the tarmac. They hugged him. It was just... It was a great time to watch peace working its way through the system. Well, I enjoyed that, hearing that conversation very much. Thank you for providing that for us here on the first day. It is 10.55. Denny will stick around, too. Thank you all so much for joining us on this Super Bowl Sunday. And let's not forget that Valentine's Day is just a few days away. And on Tuesday, the Valentine's Day, the 14th, the Marion County Clerk's Office will perform wedding ceremonies to raise money for the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women campaign. This might be kind of fun for you. You know, you go, you, you put on your your spectacular outfit and you head over to the <laughs> clerk's office. It's got to be a red dress. Right. You could, or just renew your vows if you'd like. Uh, couples are asked to make a $50, $75, or $100 contribution to the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women campaign. This is from 10 to 3 at the Marion County Clerk's Office. Give them a call if you'd like to make reservations. Otherwise, just come on out and, and uh, show up and, and make get married on Valentine's Day for $50. If you're huh? on the other side, there are some zoos that you can name a cockroach after an ex oh! and feed it to zoo animals. Oh, Valentine's I like Day. that. I like that too. That's pretty like good. That too. Okay, check that out. Some zoos are offering to name a cockroach after your ex. It's 10.56. We're going to take a break. We've got another hour to go of the first day, but today's top stories are coming up next on 93 WIBC.